And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, after an extended hiatus, high atop the legendary Cood Street Motel 6, it's the Cood Street Podcast with Gary and me. Hi, yeah, Gary. Hi, welcome back from your busy, busy uh, month of July. <laughs> July's been just hectic. Really good in places, but insanely hectic. Um, I had to finish Edge of Infinity, which I've sort of finished. Uh, largely because I turned around and handed a lot of the copy editing. Well, no, that's not true. A lot of the uh, cleaning up of the manuscript to Marianne, I'd done the, the copy edits, but I handed it to her. So I've got it on, on my desktop right now. And yesterday morning, I actually sat down and hammered out an introduction, which I need to check and see if, if it's actually written in the English language. If it is written in the English language, then I'm done. It goes in on Monday, and I can get on with my life. And the other thing was a wedding. I had a wedding to go to. Was that a delightful thing to do? It, you know, I have to say it actually really was. There's two friends of ours who are active in the Australian science fiction community, mm-hmm. Amanda Rainey and Nick Evans. And they were, they'd been together for well, about ten, nine years, I think. And they decided to get married and did it at a local bowling club, you know, as in Lawn Bowls Club. And beautiful venue, really just a fantastic ceremony. Uh, you know, some of Australia's you know, sort of science fiction you know, sort of glitterati were, were there. Elisa Krasenstein and Cat Sparks and Helen Merrick and some other people. And so much alcohol was consumed. A lot of happiness was created. And yeah, we, we sort of woke up the next morning with a terrible hangover and I had to try and finish a book. That's a sign of a good wedding. Indeed. Not the finishing a book part, but... And speaking oh, no. of finishing, and congratulations on finishing Edge of Infinity. You want to tell me what the theme is? This is... Okay. This actually is a, is a theme that I, I really want to come back to. Uh, okay. The, thing, the, the, the setting... It started off as a setting thing. The setting is an industrialized solar system pre-Starflight. Right, and so the idea was simply that you know the kind of world that Stan Robinson's writing in writing about in 2312, or James Corey's written about in his Expanse series, where you know we've come up against that physical wall where we can't readily go beyond to the stars, but we're really living in all the nooks and crannies of our solar system and exploiting it and living it, all that kind of thing. And it's interesting to me because when I was sitting down to write this introduction and I began to think about it, mm-hmm. I thought. What we're seeing, and, and tell me if you think this, this is valid, because then I'll have to go back and rewrite my introduction if it's not. Uh, what we're seeing right now is a bunch of science fiction writers pushing back against the information that we've received from scientists over the past quarter century, which has, to some degree, along with the decline in the U.S. Uh, space program, undermined the optimistic dream of going to the stars. You know, we've, we've gone out, we've looked at the, at the solar system. It's not a bright Edgar Rice Burroughs type, type playground. It's not going to be a Heinlein-esque or whoever style kind of uh, carnival of other races on space stations or whatever else. Uh, Mars, where, which, who, where people would love to go and I would love to see people go to, really looks kind of like the Nevada desert, except it really wants to kill you a lot. So it's not really mm-hmm. hospitable. It's not easy to go to. We're not going to readily go past the speed of light with just a flick of a switch. It's going to take months to get anywhere. It's going to be difficult. And that, those scientific facts, that those cold equations, if you will, 
have been have have attacked this this fundamental optimistic dream about science fiction and over the last few years you're starting to see science fiction stories pushing back going well hang on we are going to go into space maybe it won't immediately or ever be the stars but it's not just going to be the bruce sterling greg egan kind of axis of little tiny nano robots with uploaded people in them being shot out into the stars we're going to go we'll fight against this we'll uh, we'll inhabit the asteroid belt. We'll find ways to mine Jupiter. We'll do this. It'll take time. It'll be big scale. It'll, it won't be easy. But there's that kind of optimistic drive to it again, even if individual stories aren't optimistic, that I think is really important to science fiction and really has seemed to come back. And that's what the book's about. That's um, and, uh, <clears throat> uh, that's something I think I've said in several reviews of the Paul McCauley's Quiet War novels were one of the first things to do that. Uh, I think uh, when we get to, to Al Reynolds' Poseidon's Children, at least it starts off, there's, there's a lot of coming back into the solar system. And I think, uh, I think there are a couple of things that affect this. One has to do with uh, Neil Stevenson's idea behind hieroglyph. Yeah. That if, if, we're going to go, if we're going to physically, as human beings, or as the many variations on human beings, which Dan Robinson describes in 2312, if we're going to be in the solar system, that means big engineering. And as you know, uh, uh, Neil's complaint uh, in his now famous uh, world policy review essay was that science fiction doesn't do big engineering anymore. It tries to solve problems uh, through some kind of high physics magic. You know, we'll have the wormholes, we'll have the nanobots, we have uh, the alternate, uh, you know, virtual reality transformations of ourselves. Um, but I think what the, the one thing I think that 2312 does, and we were talking just before the podcast, that really is emerging as one of the major novels of this year, mm. just in terms of its imaginative force. He works out everything in that. I mean, the, 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 the crawling city on Mercury is, is itself just a masterpiece of invention. Mm -hmm. So I think the part, of, part of what's going on is that. Part of it is that this enables people to imagine science fiction in terms of big-ticket engineering items, which is something we, we used to do with Heinlein. Yes. And, and Second thing I think that in, is involved with that is um, that all the means that science fiction had developed uh, for interstellar travel yeah. came cliches. You had wormholes, you had generation starships, and anything you do to talk about, unless you just decide to set a, a, a story on an unnamed planet somewhere out in the distant reaches, which is virtually using it as a metaphor, yeah. unless you decide to do that, the only way to get to the stars is to go to some old, cliched science fiction trope, which can still be handled well. You have to go to a generation starship. You have to go to a gateway. Yeah. You have to go to something that has been done for decades now. Yeah. And I think that people think it might be more fun and there may be more imaginative space in looking at how we could actually get to the solar system than in sort of dreaming, sort of hand-wavy ways of getting to the stars. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you do need elements of, of magic, of hand wavium in, in most science fiction stories. Not all, but, but, but in many of them. But I think, yes, we are sitting there going, I, I, I love these ideas of just flicking around. But, you know, when you look at the information we get back about the planets and whatever else, they're, they're fascinating, but they're not livable spaces as they are. Mm -mm. And there's very little reason to anticipate... It seems to me that there are livable spaces out there in the universe anywhere. There'll be livable-esque places that we need to change to make livable to us. And so, you know, we need to have, as a race going out into, the, in, you know, first of all into the solar system, then who knows, maybe into the stars. Um, 
we have to have practical skills and tools we don't have. The, the evolution of those tools and skills is a fantastic story to tell, I think. And that's why, you know, as you say, with, with 2312, I don't know whether the Terraria are remotely realistic in the sense that um, there are certain tools that are you know, imagined in, 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 in creating a Terraria, which for listeners who have not read 2312, mm. are basically hollowed out asteroids that have been turned into mini-ecologies. Yeah? Uh, yeah. And that's why I think in that book at one point, I think they say there are more birds off Earth than on Earth kind of thing. Because if anybody's going to reject, react well to zero gravity, you'd think it'd be birds. Um, true. True, yeah, maybe. But one of the things, I mean, but the, the, the fact that he uses the term terraria, which is a very cleverly chosen mm. term, it's, 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 it's a giganticized version of a tiny technology that kids have in their own rooms. You know, go back to Neil Stevenson's point, a little kid could read about terraria and look at the little terrarium in their bedroom and think, oh, I could build one of those when I grow up to be a big scientist. Uh, that may not be realistic, but it's that kind of dreams that, that Stevenson claims science fiction used to instill in young scientists and engineers that it doesn't anymore because, because of the fact that it's just too convenient to use old science fiction tropes. And I think, in a way, confining yourself to the solar system, and this is really the second anthology you've done this with because Life on Mars is the same sort of thing, mm. uh, is is in some ways now more of an imaginative challenge than um, than finding ways of going to other galaxies and so forth. I th I th well, in, in a sense it is, because you're talking about really coming to terms with imagining the next great leap to the stars for humankind, or, or leap off the you know, great leap forward generally, any, in any sense, for for humankind. Um, you know, we've seen that this, you know, we've seen the, the sort of the science fiction of the 30s and 40s, which didn't have the same kind of information, and so it could just imagine and propose some technological solutions. By the by, the science fiction of the 80s, we were getting real information, and there was you know th there was no sign of, of magic you know star drives that were going to get us past the, the speed right. of light. Um, there was no and you know suddenly sort of there, there was no sort of you know it, what, I, th I think when I was when I was 10 years old, say. The imagine, you, know, you figured that Mars was you know, kind of like Earth, but without much water. And then you realize, of course, it's nothing much like Earth. It's this rock in space that's irradiated and cold with almost no atmosphere at all, etc., etc. Um, so making that an, you know, an attractive thing. I mean, like I, I saw recently, I don't know if you did, they're offering uh, tickets to Mars now, actual tickets to Mars. There's a private company that believes it can get a craft to Mars and back. And if you've got the money, you can pay to go to Mars. One-way trip. And, you know, okay. I I, I, if I had a hundred billion dollars and I could pay whatever it is for the ticket, I think I'd say no, Gary. I do. I think I'd say no. Uh, really? uh, well, I'll start with the fact that one, I'd kind of like to come back. Hmm. Two, and this may make me a terrible science fiction person, but you know what? It looks like a desert in Nevada, and it wants to kill you. That's probably true. Now. I can just go to Nevada and have someone kill me. I'm not sure that I'm in. Maybe it, makes, it does. Maybe it makes me a bad science fiction person. But I look at it and I'm not convinced, Gary. Well, I mean, one of the things that uh, we realized once the space program began was that the sleek, uh, you know, white enameled interiors of spaceships that we'd get in a movie like 2001 aren't going to happen. I mean, no. even if you. Even if you have your hundred billion dollars, you're going to be strapped into a tiny place. The biggest space habitat we've built is 
uh, you know, the, the, the whole International Space Station thing. And it's not comfortable from all the, all the accounts I've heard of it. It's not the kind of place you'd want to take a vacation on. So essentially, you're, yeah, you're talking about strapping yourself into an elaborate tin can and going to a place that wants to kill you. And the, the can would just as soon kill you, too, if anything goes wrong. So, so, so the idea, when I, when I was a kid and got my reservation to the moon through the science fiction book club, which I intend to buy in someday, mm-hmm. um, I was thinking, well, sure, you know, it's going to be like uh, Disney World stripped to the moon where you strap yourself in and uh, you take off and you feel a little vibration and then, boom, you're on the moon. That's, you know, that's a kind of dream which basically goes back to George Melier or somebody. It is, uh, because like, what you're really going to get is three months in the cheapest economy seat on the planet. Yeah. With probably a catheter to pee into and reprocessed food to eat, no room to move, no gravity, cosmic rays bombarding you, and when you get to the other end, you can dig a hole and live in the hole because that's the only place you're going to be safe. Well, let's admit are people who want to do that and probably no, no, and they're great. I mean, I'll never forget. Charles told this story about having gone to China, and he was coming back from China, uh, and there was an astronaut sitting on the plane beside him. I forget what her name was, uh, she, and and you know she was she'd been talking at the same uh, uh, conference that he'd been at, and they were talking about going to Mars, and. Yeah, he said, you know, if, if you could get a, a one-way ticket to Mars, would you take it? And he's like, yes, in a heartbeat. She absolutely right. would, without hesitation. So there totally are people who absolutely would. To some degree, the stories that you see in Edge of Infinity and in 2312 and wherever else that we're talking about is getting beyond that because that's the really unpleasant, nasty bit, and that has to be done. But once you get through that, you can begin to see. It's like you can see how you know, the moon isn't that far away. And if there's val- value to being physically upon the moon, we can get people to the moon, and we could put some kind of permanent facility there and do things from the moon. And then once you're out of the gravity well, well, that's an actual stepping stone forward to, well, Mars. Well, once you're on Mars, at least you may be being irradiated, but you're on an actual um, solid f- footing somewhere. Mm. And you can go. You can find some narrow crack of a valley. You can roof it over. You can pump it full of... Uh, you know, climate you can deal with. And then, you, you know, you, you have access to wherever else from there. And once you start that process, it's like sort of lichen on a rock. You know, once life, sort of life begins to creep in, these other possibilities open up and your technology improves. And suddenly, this, the, the, like I said, the romance part of it comes in. And you, you do get the romance of adventure, the romance of science, which is so integral to what makes science fiction rewarding, I think. I think it's more than the adventure of, of, of science. I think the some of that pioneering idea mm, sure. uh, is uh, there's a there was a great Swedish film of I'm going to guess 30 years ago now called The Immigrants, um, and it was about a family that saves up its money and maybe it's a Norwegian film. People in Scandinavia will have to forgive me for this, but I think it's a Swedish film. But a, but a farming family saves up their money and they manage to get passage for the family on a, on a ship to the United States. And one of the kids dies of dysentery or something. It's just a horrible trip. And then after they're done with that horrible trip, they use what remaining money they have to, to, to get a train from, I think, New York to Kansas City or something, which is mm-hmm. as far as the train went in the 1840s. And then they set off on foot with a wagon and find themselves in Minnesota in this verdant valley um, 
and just start chopping down trees and building a house. Mm-hmm. And it's it, in many ways that reads that, that that views like a science fiction movie. These are people who, for reasons that have nothing to do than just the urge to have their own place, mm-hmm. uh, endure horrible hardships. They lose children. They, there's a sequel to the movie in which one of the family members is trapped in the great American desert and dies. So they, for all intents and purposes, for all their capacity technologically to handle themselves, they're on another planet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yet they wanted to do that. And you know, that, that I think is always there. I think the, the engineering part of it is, is crucial though, that we, we think about ways, uh, and I'm betting that some of your stories do this. And I, I know that Stan Robinson is doing this thinking about how this might happen. It's, it's, it's a lot harder to figure out how it might be paid for and so forth. Mm-hmm. But there, there, there's, there's creative thinking going on now about new improvements on technology in a way that there may not have been in science fiction for a long time. I mean, um, one of the things that strikes me interesting, I was, I was writing this summer, God knows what I was writing, that, um, that uh, an early technology, uh, the, the old, the, oldest technology in science fiction, going right back to Hugo Gernsback, is the rocket ship. Yeah. And basically, what Gernsback's writers imagined a rocket ship to be like wasn't didn't change much until we were imagining rockets in the 60s and 70s. They were still rockets, and they were still doing the same thing. Um, and they're talking about going back to stuff like that again. Yeah. Um, and, and, and in a sense, that's a different kind of challenge. From mm. One of the interesting things, for example is that if you read a science fiction story from the 1930s and you understand it's got a rocket in it, they mm. may have thought Goddard rocket, but it's a rocket. If you read a 30-year-old story about computer technology, uh, it seems ancient. I was rereading, I was reviewing the new Ra- Roberta McAvoy novel, and her first novel, Tea with the Black Dragon, which is a fantasy, but mm. had a lot of cutting-edge computer technology in it for 1992 or something. No, earlier than that, old friend. Earlier than really? that, 1980-something. 80-something? Okay, I didn't review it then. I just read it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's striking now how dated that novel seems compared to something like Rocket Ship Galileo. Yes, I think that's probably true. The whole um, the whole um, computer technology thing is, is something, and social and, and media communication technology is one of those things that always stands out now as being really outdated-looking. I am going to ask you one thing, actually, about this Neil Stevenson thing, because you've talked about it a few times, and I have to admit that I've always been spectacularly disinterested, which probably sounds terrible, but it always struck me as this thing that came along a bit too you know, a bit too late after everybody else had had the same idea and really didn't amount to much. And so I'm, I'm kind of intrigued as to whether it has any particular substance or interest. You know, because I don't know. It's just like, meh, it just seems like, oh, yeah, everybody else is talking about it, everybody else was doing it, yeah, who cares? Um... I don't know where it is right now. I've, um, I'm, I'm on a mailing list, and it's a bit dormant for a while. Yeah. Uh, and so, and, and I know that the stories are being written and coming in for this anthology. Um, okay. But it sounds, it sounds a lot like uh, the kinds of things you're already talking about in your anthologies. Like, yeah. Can we really do? Uh, the idea of achievable technology is strikes me as an interesting compromise between mundane SF on the one hand and space opera on the other. In other words, it's, it's, it's not necessarily something that's going to involve star drives or, or, or nanobots and so forth, but it's not something that's going to confine itself to what we absolutely know we can do with today's technology. So, no. so there's a middle ground that I think is, is worth exploring. Let me ask you this, though. I mean, is the ground that it appears to be interested in examining ground for 
science fiction of any great interest at all. And by that I mean, if I understand it, it's all about coming up with uh, grand engineering ideas and science fiction kind of frameworks, or science frameworks. I wonder if it's more about dreaming up new ideas for science to examine rather than looking at the uh, ground that uh, science fiction takes place on. Does that make sense? I, it does make sense, and I think that there's a little bit of both. I mean, I think this is supposed to be a compromise between scientists and the people they used to call futurists and engineers and policy planners and that sort of thing, uh, to think about n not just improvements in technology, not just building bigger and better dams, for example, or, mm -hmm. or, or stratospheric, uh, you know, building the Concorde again. A lot, a, lot, a lot of those dreams didn't seem to work out very well. Yeah, um, but it might it might be a return to the idea where um, there was a time in science fiction in the 40s and 50s where a science fiction writer could come up with what, what might be a completely lunatic idea. Yeah, but you could get away with it. Um, in the early 50s, there were a lot of writers. Uh, A.J. Budrich wrote a good story on this, and there were several of them. But there was this little this little meme going around in the 50s about broadcast energy, about yeah. a, a geostationary satellites which people knew we could have why couldn't they just collect solar energy from the sun and beam it down to earth and would have free energy for the whole world mm -hmm. um, it's i don't have I, I have nowhere near the technological knowledge to know if that's completely wacky or not but the fact is a science fiction writer could write a story like that get it published and then you have a solution to a worldwide energy crisis that uh, that, that generates the story yeah um, the other I don't know. Um, oh, here's a good example. Yeah. Uh, completely off the wall idea, famous story from uh, from Ray Leinster from The Logic Named Joe. He had almost outside of telephone technology, he had no business inventing what amounts to the World Wide Web in 1946. Mm -hmm. And essentially, nobody paid attention to it. Everybody likes to point to that story now as one of the few prophecies of science fiction. As far as I can tell, it had no impact whatsoever at the time. <laughs> Another crazy idea of Murray Leinster's, and we'll, he'll, he'll, he'll have five more crazy ideas next month. Um, so I think that maybe part of what's being encouraged is, uh, is writers thinking they can do that, thinking you can, you know, if you, if you can even vaguely rationalize a crazy idea uh, that you can get away with. Okay. To some extent, hard science fiction, I think, uh, really uh, hard playing with the net up science fiction may have put constraints on a certain number of writers. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. To the extent that you have to, you know, you have to be able to rationalize everything, uh, you know, to your, to your physics uh, exam committee yeah. before you get Okay. Let, let me ask you a, a, question, a question that occurs to me. This, partic this year, and I realize that a year in publishing is a, a construct, and we've talked about it many times, that's a, a fake construct. But nonetheless, this year to me just feels like a much stronger, more optimistic, more interesting year than we've had for some while. And if that's true, and if you agree that's true, do you think to some degree it's connected directly to this finding a way to reconnect with a pathway to a science fictional future that sees us leaving the planet? Um, the thing that I always am cautious about when, when somebody says it's a good year is that uh, it, 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 yeah, I, I agree. I agree with the kind of novels we're seeing. They're exciting. I think some of them are um, exciting in ways that are not technologically achievable in any way we can look sure. at, like the uh, Planes Runner and again, the McDonald's series. But I also have to keep in mind that, yeah, that looks this way this year, but that means these novels are being written over the preceding two or three years. 
Yeah. Which suggests to me that these optimistic novels we're seeing, or these at least uh, encouraging novels we're seeing, were being written during a time of worldwide economic catastrophe. But that's, that has always struck me as a thoroughly natural thing. I mean, if you go back to the mid-80s, which during my lifetime or the early 80s always seemed like a particularly bleak time because America was in the middle of the Reagan era and the right. UK was in the middle of, um, the, of Thatcherism, you know. Um, what do we get from Thatcherism? We get new space opera, basically. Yeah. Which, whilst it's more practical, still is a boisterous, adventurous kind of a thing. Uh, and there's even uh, cyberpunk, which came out of Reaganism, is... Um, has its that sort of has a sense of uh, energy and vitality to it. So quite often you get it, 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 when faced with bleak times, you see uh, artists and creators trying to come come up with a more positive, more if not positive, that's the wrong way of putting. It. Coming up with, with with an imaginative and, and and affirming kind of thing happening in their fiction. And I, I guess you could turn and say, well, is neuromancer really an affirming kind of a fiction? I don't know, but it's certainly a, got a lot of life and energy in it you know so i'm not that surprised and i'm also actually i mean i agree with you that the books we're seeing now and that we've talked about over the last 18 months date back probably 36 months 48 months and, mm -hmm. but then that says to me there's a good chance that the next and this will be the test of the whole idea the next 12 to 24 months could be very strong indeed um it could be, but here's a, here's, a, here's a question to sort of throw a monkey wrench into that. Mm -hmm. At the same time that we're seeing this emergence of um, possibilities, let's say, in, in, in adult science fiction, YA science fiction is being, and fantasy is being taken over by dystopias, by really, really grim futures. Yeah, but I mean, okay, uh, to, to some, yes, that, 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 that is true. Though the half the time... Um, those dystopias are interesting things because the, you know it depends whether the dystopias are post-apocalyptic stories because half the time you end up with post-apocalyptic pastorals where the science mm. fiction idea of post-apocalypse is just the classic science uh, young adult meme of getting the parents out of the story so you can start fresh and do something without you know them Some around. Um, I think. Oh, okay, I don't know. I'm going to guess that some of it has to do with. The different way that adults and young adults look at the world. Uh, I think probably young adults are still looking at the world as problems to solve, and so uh, in a, the your dystopians' stories are problem-solving stories for them. Whereas a little bit, nah, that's nonsense. I don't know. I'm not really sure. Is, is my well, answer I think, now? <laughs> I, I think you're right, and there's there's a distinction to be made between. Uh, True dystopian stories uh, and and post-apocalyptic stories, because basically, if you have a, a, a global apocalypse, whether it's uh, through you know the destruction of the, uh, the the end of the oil era and the destruction of the coastlines in Paolo Bacigalupi's mm -hmm. series, or uh, even in Scott Westerfeld's Uglies, there's there's some you know, ancient age which the, the, the earlier era which misused the environment and destroyed the environment. So once you create that, you set up a kind of frontier uh, series. I had this odd thought. I was looking at um, the Amazon rankings because for once I have a book that I can that <laughs> comes in less than 250,000. Um, and the, the science fiction novels of the 50s down at the bottom of the page, and I love the way Amazon's algorithms figure this out. Um, we were doing really well on these nine science fiction, this two-volume science fiction novels of the series. And at the bottom of the page it said, 
customers who bought this also bought this. And the other Library of America volume was The Complete Little House on the Prairie by Laura Ingalls. <laughs> That's perfect. I know. And I thought, well, wait a minute. Those Laura Ingalls Wilder things, we read some of those. Some of those are pretty grim also. Oh, There's yeah. It's a, this is about survival in a hostile environment again. So maybe that's what appeals to, to, to kids is the idea that you know there's some kind of arena for genuine heroic adventure, which yeah, I could see that. the real world doesn't really afford to them anymore. I can also see how Little House in the Prairie would make a great science fiction story if you set it in space. Absolutely. Well, there was a there was a wasn't there was a was it a movie or a TV series called Space Family Robinson or something like that? Yes, there was. Yeah. There was a TV series. Yes, TV series. Yeah, with the. With that, with that robot that kept saying danger will something or other, um, but uh, but yeah, I, I think that's part of the appeal to young adults is that that's a way of writing adventure fiction when it's difficult to write adventure fiction in any environment that they would recognize in their own lives. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. And by the way, speaking of uh, your anthology, one more thing since you've already mentioned Marianne doing a lot of the work on it, since I've now become convinced that. Marianne may be the secret master of the Strahan Empire. <laughs> of Earth, hey, can I just say, no, 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 she's the public master of the Strahan Empire, so just to be, just to be really clear about it, but yes. I think, I, I think you should invite her to join us on the podcast. I, fu I fully should. Now, the only thing is, am I going to be mean about it, or am I going to be kind? Because, you see, if I'm kind about it, I'll, I'll just invite her on immediately, right? Though she's not here, she's off having a, a respite weekend. She's away this weekend. Um, or am I mean, and do I make her actually wait till she's caught up on the podcasts? Because she's listening to the podcast, right? But she's still uh -huh. back around Ian McDonald. Well, that gives her a perfect excuse to never catch up, doesn't it? <laughs> Well, actually, she did say to me, I mean, you know, I've talked a few times about maybe doing a book club kind of a thing mm -hmm. uh, for the podcast. And she said, if we ever did that, she would be very interested to, to, to come on. So maybe that's a motivation to actually get on with that idea. Well, another thing about that idea, which I thought about, maybe we should do a book club. And I, I, I've not resisted it, except, as you know, I have things I have to read. Well, yeah, but, but, but I've always said, just to interrupt, that the key I thing behind the book club idea would be it would be something you had to read anyway. Well, or hand read. I mean, yeah, I was, right. what about what about having other people other people choose the books? How would somebody? What if Marianne had a book that she wanted to discuss, and we would all read it for the book club? Oh, uh, we could end up reading Charlene Harris, Gary. I'm gonna tell Marianne you said that. <laughs> She's probably gonna hear it in about four months' time. Oh, okay. Uh, right. Hi, Marianne. Right. I love you. Right. No, uh, that, no, that, that'd be great. Yeah, sure, we could set up a... Somebody, no, seriously, because you mentioned Charlene Harris, and I read one Charlene Harris novel, yeah. and this was way back before the TV series, and it's not bad. Um, they're fun, and I, they're I, fun, I, they're, they're very popular, but yeah. Yeah, they're very popular, they're, and I've thought for years that these whole segments of fiction that I don't read, I don't read most of what's called urban fantasy. Most of it is terrible. I don't like the covers, I don't... I, the people who read it are not people I find terribly interesting to talk to most of the time. But there are good readers out there. I, I, I see this, I get this sense every once in a while when I yeah. uh, read Car Carolyn Cushman's reviews in Locust because she's reading stuff that the rest of us sure, don't sure. read. With. And every once in a while there's something I think, you know, there probably is a really, really good um, teenage vampire novel out there somewhere. I'm sure there, there are. I'm sure, no, there is. There absolutely is. There's some great people writing. I don't even, don't even know if it would be, uh, Team Human might be one. The Larbalestier... Yeah, Brennan one. 
So yeah, it's it's, it's got vampires in it. I mean, look, there's, there are always great examples of any of these kind of things. Not the least because, as you know, Gary, um, you know, all it takes is a good writer to, to sort of, ha- you know, have a, have a, a bash at it. I mean, uh, if you said to me, could there be a great werewolf story? I'd go, yeah. Then you go read The Skin Hunger by George R. R. Martin, and you're going, yeah, there can be fantastic stories. So I've got no doubt they're out there. It's interesting, though, you know, I'm, I'm now going to share a, a relevant but private email, and I hope that the person who sent it to me will not mind. Mm. Because I was emailing Bruce Sterling the other day because he has a story uh, in fact, that, that, in fact, closes Edge of Infinity. Uh-huh. A story that I like very much uh, called The Peak of Eternal Light. But I asked him, I said, you must have some stuff, you know, like novels coming up. And we're up for a bit of a... Uh, Bruce Sterling novel, you and I, I would I think. think so. Yeah. So this is what he says. Well, yeah, I have a paranormal romance com- novel coming out. It, <laughs> it's basically a fun in-joke, though, he says. I'd like to write another novel, but it's so bleakly depressing to talk to American publishers that I can't find the time. Uh-huh. But Bruce Sterling writing paranormal romance. You're going, well, there you go. I've now heard it all, and I, I can retire to my villa in the south of France and drink schnapps until the sun goes down. I've, that, that, that supports what I've always thought that there is there, there's no genre that a good writer might not want to take his or her hand at. I think that's true. I mean, sure. Gene Wolfe's last three or four novels have been all over the map. I mean, look at an Evil Guest. You're going back to yeah. one of the weirdest of his novels, Pandora by Holly Hollander, which seemed to sort of prefigure the whole YA thing more, a decade and a half ago. I think that's true. I think it's true. Ah, good writers out there doing good things, no doubt about that. Okay, well, we we will look to get Marianne on the podcast. Hopefully, by the time she hears this podcast, she'll already have been on, which would be nice. And hopefully, she'll be be willing to still stay married to me after she hears this podcast. Um, I wasn't that bad, was I? Well, no, but she's also, I mean, you have to admit, she 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 was an important figure at Locus for a long time. Without which, you would not have met her. Oh, look, absolutely. Uh, not only do I have to admit, I'd be the first to say. Uh, she was a very important figure at Locus for, for nearly a decade, and influential after that, and instrumental in everything I've done from you know, the time I met her in 1993. Mm-hmm. You know? So, yeah, I, I think that, that that's you know, a, a fair thing. So tell me, Gary... Let me think. Uh, what else do we have to kick off on before we before we head home? Uh, we've agreed that twenty three twelve is a great book. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I've started reading Empty Space by M. John Harrison, which you should probably start reading too. It's the third and final of the Kefahuchi track novels, if I've pronounced that correctly. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe yeah, that might be a book a book club book. I don't know. Something we could talk about. Um, there is a little bit of news out there. There's two news items that I think would be worth having a little chat about. The first is one that has to do with how your co- your po- podcast co-host is an immature child who really, 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 really wants the next lot of news now, and that is that prefiguring the release of the World Fantasy Convention uh, ballot for or award ballot for 2012, we have n- been they have now released the recipients of the Lifetime Achievement Awards. Did you see that, well, Gary? I saw that. Yes, Alan Garner, who has been considered every year for mm. probably since the awards began. We certainly, when I, in my year, we actively discussed him at that time, and for various reasons, opted not to. But we certainly did discuss him actively at the time. We did in my year as well. My, the, re- the reason my year was was because Diane Wynne Jones hated him. Ah. I shouldn't keep. And, oh, uh, anyway, yeah. Sorry. 
the other choice seems to be one of the inevitable choices. Oh, you absolutely. Well, I think they're, they're, they're well. Yes, I mean it's interesting because George actually George R. R. Martin is the other choice. Yeah, the author of Song of Ice and Fire and The Skin mm-hmm. Trade and all sorts of other great things. Um, is absolutely one of those no-brainers, though interestingly sits on that cusp of being, and he won't feel this way, a little too young. He's 60... Well, I'm going to say four. Yeah. Oh, they've certainly given it to younger people, and I have no doubt for a second that George is someone who does, is utterly deserving of, of, the, of the award and was, would always have been on the, you know, in line to get one. But I was interested. I was also interested that... And I feel like I don't want to harp on this one a great deal, but I do point out Gary with slightly gritted teeth that it does, you know, that they have chosen two male recipients for the award, which does not help redress the gender imbalance in our field. The historic imbalance. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Yes, you're right. And for so when they give it to a relative spring chicken like George Martin at 63, and don't give it to say off the top of my head Mary Stewart at about 400. Mm. You know, I'm not sure that's the way I would have gone, though I think George absolutely is, is deserving, and I'm happy to see him get it, would be happy to see him get it any year. I wouldn't begin to second-guess what kind of discussions they may no, have no. had. I, no, no. I think, I, if I'm not mistaken, the youngest person ever to get it probably was Stephen King. Uh, um, could be, could be. 15 years ago or something. And there, there, there's, you always wonder if there's there's an impact of you know, immediate popularity there. And uh, or a reaction of Song of Ice and Fire. I was looking, interestingly enough, in uh, John Clute's Illustrated Encyclopedia of Science Fiction from 1998 or something like that. Uh, and there's a, a half page about George Martin, and it's saying he hasn't written much science fiction or fantasy lately, and we miss him. This was right after he'd done the Wild Card series. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, oh, too bad George has left the field. Uh, and I thought, well, part of part of the argument I would make, you know. In his favor, uh, if not this year, then eventually. Mm-hmm. It's not just the Song of Ice and Fire, but no, the fact not. that he had done these things like Armageddon Rag and Fever Dream, and, uh, and and some really terrific novels. Armageddon Rag is still one of the best descriptions I know of the um, troubles here in Chicago during the Democratic Convention. You betcha, and and, and also you know a, a staggeringly high quality body of short fiction, frankly. Yeah, and not to mention a considerable influence on uh, on American television. Well, yes, yes, that too. I, I must say, I mean, I first encountered George's work back in the early days of Omni, when he was writing. You know, when he was writing for them, I think that's where Sand Kings originally appeared. Right. Um, and I remember one of the first ever, in fact, the first limited edition small press book I ever stumbled across was an early collection of his, his called "Songs the Dead Men Sing," yes. which, is, which is stunningly brilliant, and then his tough voyaging stuff. So, I mean. And yes, he wrote for the for the Twilight Zone, and yes, he originated uh, Beauty and the Beast, and now, of course, Game of Thrones. Right. But, but that early body of work, some of it was fantastic, and, and so utterly deserving of, of any of these major awards. But, well, but, but the gender questions are, Gary, I mean, you know, and, 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 and Mary Short's 95, Gary, she's 95. I know, and uh, there there were other names as well that come up year after year. I think Joyce Carol Oates has been on those. Mm-hmm. And I, again, you can't second guess what a, a, a committee does. One of the things I do know that comes up in making any kind of a lifetime achievement decision is the breadth and significance of, of work of, 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 a, of a lot of different mm. works, as opposed to the uh, 
of enormous significance of a small body of work. Alan sure. Garner, for example, wrote relatively few novels and then more or less left the field. Yes, but were enormous important novels. That's true. That's true. But can I also say what an interesting and important year for Alan Garner this is now? And I'm, I desperately hope they're going to drag him over to Toronto. I would be thrilled. I mean, first of all, have you read much of Garner's work, Gary? Yes, not not for decades. No, no, no. But I mean, I, I okay. I remember very clearly being eight years old and going to the Mount Lawley Primary School, public Mount Lawley Primary School Library. A hundred-year-old school that burnt down about two weeks ago, sadly, um, in an arson attack. And reading the Moon of Gomrath, reading the Weirdstone of Brzingerman, reading yeah. Elador. Okay, so Alan Garner has a new novel coming out in about really? in about a month and a half, two months, from Fourth Estate in the UK, and it is the conclusion to the Weirdstone of Brzingerman, Moon of Gomrath sequence. That's rather astonishing. I did not know that. Yeah, it's a book. Apparently, he's talked about writing it for about 30 years. And this is the book which concludes the sequence. And it comes out at the end of August. And so, first of all, we need to address it in our magazine. Unfortunately, it's getting harder to get review copies from the UK, but we'll have to ch uh, chase HarperCollins to get a copy because they are fourth estate. Um and I, I do, I desperately hope he's going to come to uh, World Fantasy because it would be fantastic to get to meet him and maybe even talk to him on this podcast, Gary. That would be wonderful. The other person who comes up to mind, and when we were discussing it, who came up more or less in discussion at the same time as Alan Garner was Susan Cooper, who I still yes. has not received one. She has and not. Again. And she similarly is, 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 is you know, sort of fo you know, gruesomely following the, the, you know, the laws of physics is not growing un younger. Right, exactly. Um, I should say not that she herself is aging in a gruesome fashion, just that it's a relentless uh, passage of time thing rather than anything else. Well, whatever. But again, well, you, you know what I mean? But I mean, she's, what, 77, so it would be uh, nice to get it, give, give her one if you're going to before it's posthumous. Right, I agree. And, and I, would, I would put the, – the reason she came up along with Alan Garner is that – I mean, this is one of the things, interestingly enough – that all of us of different generations, because you may have read Alador when you were eight, and I may have read it when I was 20, but nevertheless, same thing with As Dark as Rising. Everybody read it at some point, it seems. Mm, yeah. Uh, and, and, and the fact that you know she didn't write a huge amount of stuff that have been, I mean, she's done picture books and that sort of thing. But the fact is that those two series are two of the most influential series ever in 20th century fantasy. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, on the other hand, George George Martin, let's say, at a relatively younger age, his mom may have done more and more diverse things. He's written science fiction, he's written horror, he's written fantasy, he's written uh, for television, he's written for, you know, all, all sorts of things. But you can't overlook the, you know, enormous importance of people who have written just masterpieces that yeah. that, that every new generation seems to discover. Yeah, but that said, I mean, I, I honestly, I, I have no real criticism at all. In fact, no, I've got no criticism of the World Fantasy Jury. It's really just a case of, I'd, I would like to have seen, I'd like to see some, some, Historical gender balance coming into place. I think Garner and Martin are fantastic choices. Uh, I love George's work. Love Garner's work. Hope they'll both be in Toronto, though. Though you never know. They're both, you know, busy and and, and in uh, Garner's just case aging people. So you just don't know. Um, and and also I guess you know, the reason I say you know sort of the, the child in me is that the child in me sort of wants the next big bit of news. So I want the world fantasy ballot, Carrie. I'm I'm ready now. I like. It's, I'm, I'm ready to. It's, it's, it's about time as well. Now, my, my recollection is it's usually about now that we get it, isn't it? 
Um, it seems to me it's usually a couple of weeks after the announcement of the um, of the Life Achievement Award winners, mm. because that means basically the committee had had already sent those in some time ago, and now it's should be voting by the end of July. Yeah. 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 Uh, and the other piece of news, the yes. other piece of news you're going to mention. Well, I mean, there's, I'll come to it in a second because you know, I'm, I'm all ready to wait to, to mention this one. Um, and that, that also means uh, tying in with that, I guess, is that Hugo voting closes in two days. Yes, so we'll, we'll get this podcast up today, I hope, with a little bit of luck. And I would encourage everybody to vote for whatever you think is um, worthwhile. You know, we, we don't typically refer to this as the Cood Street podcast, a Hugo Award-nominated podcast, but just for this one, this one moment, I will. It's a Hugo Award-nominated podcast. And, you know, whilst I won't be there, Gary, you will, and and they could vote for us, Gary. All of them. Everybody. Everybody there could, could absolutely could happen. But on the other hand, just or somebody else. Or somebody just in else. case. Uh, well, let me see. I'm hoping George Martin will be there with his annual band, little package of, of Hugo Losers ribbons to put on your badge. Could you get me one, Gary? I won't be there. Uh, I'll I'll get you one. Thank uh, you. You picked up one last year, didn't you? Yeah, I got a bunch. Okay, you have to. Okay, I've got <laughs> I've, I've got a bunch of losses. I've got four of them, Gary. I mean, I, okay. Well, I think you know, if you can't win a Hugo, you can go for a record on most losses. I think neither of us are in the running for that one, Gary. No, I, I think there's a few people out there. Mark Kelly has keeps keeps track of that. I think up until a few years ago, and maybe still until today, it might have been David Hartwell with the most nominations. Before he won, that that could very well be, but the, you know this is yes. Look, I feel like I now have to say because it's true that the being nominated is is, is sufficient uh, honor in and of itself, and I really am just joking about telling people to go out and vote for us. No, 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 no. Um, <laughs> and that it would be really you know sort of what I hope is that, that it's a, a great night. I do wish I could be there, but barring magic and miracles, that's not going to be the case. Um, and yeah, I, I hope it, it, it's brilliant. Is what I hope. Um, I think it will be wonderful. And I think, well, the thing is, there are uh, even though this is a one-off category called fan cast, mm-hmm. uh, I do have to say that there are some really good fan casts out there. There are. Uh, and I, I, I would be hard pressed among the nominees to say that there's any any one of them that would disappoint me. Well, I mean, yes, I agree with that. That's true. I would not be disappointed to see any of them win. I think they're all wonderful and worthy. I'd be more undisappointed if if, if we won. Well, yes, but that's <laughs> that's childish. I know. <laughs> you, you have to be you have to be really really effete in order to describe a win as being less disappointed. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Well, speaking of disappointment, Gary, th- th- this is the other I- news item of news. And, wow, gee, disappointment doesn't really cover it, does it? Let us talk in the latter moments of this podcast about Redicon 2012, a rewarding convention that you spoke fondly about, that we had a great podcast with Caitlin mm. Kiernan and Peter Straub from, but which honestly seems to have walked into a brick wall after the fact. Well, uh, let me... I, I, I'm on the program committee of ReaderCon, which turns out is not the same thing as being on the con committee, which is definitely not the same thing as being on the board of directors. So I'll start off by saying I don't, I've never understood the political structure of any convention whatsoever. Sure. But the fact is that what happened, as, as we all know by now, anybody who's uh, been on Twitter or, or, or LiveJournal or Facebook in the last... 24 hours or 46 hours or whatever, 
is that um, there was an incident of harassment, which was directed at Genevieve Valentine, who was, by the way, absolutely delightful participant. Actually, there's another sub sub issue of that, which Genevieve has talked about, and I hope that she'll join us on this podcast. Yeah. But, But apart from the harassment, there was a panel that she was on in which she was well, frankly, condescended to by one of the elderly male panelists. Oh, that's um, bad. Yeah. On, on, on the topic, which was, uh, she was the only woman on a panel on Frankenstein, a book written by a woman. And she was actually, I thought, brilliant. I mean, she, she made some really sharp observations. But mm-hmm. there was, not all the other panelists, but one other panelist was, was fairly condescending. So at some point, we should talk about the issue of, um, of, of con etiquette. I, I, I guess we should. I have to say... Listening to you, there is nothing surprising about anything you said. There's nothing surprising that Genevieve Valentine should be brilliant on a panel or any other person should be. And there's nothing surprising that, unfortunately, some entitled, aging white guy felt the need to condescend to somebody. It's just on very an unfortunate side effect or part of the culture of uh, science fiction conventions these days, or has been for a long time. And well, I, mean, I, guess, I, I guess it is. And, I, and there are all kinds of condescension which we can talk about. I mean, one yeah. of my favorite conventions... Actually, my favorite convention besides ICFA and, and World Fantasy, as you know, is the ICFA in Florida. And I've seen panels there where people were condescended to for simply not having their PhD in hand. Uh, so <sighs> there are all kinds of bad behaviors there. Anyway, the let, let, let's behavior, bring us back to Ritacon, yeah? yeah? It brings us back to Ritacon. The bad behavior that created the problem at Ritacon was that Genevieve was repeatedly harassed by uh, uh, somebody who I think I may have met named Renee Walling, uh, but I'm not sure. Um, and and apparently there were other accounts of it. There were witnesses. When he was called into account, he didn't deny any of it. And the ReaderCon board, rather than enforcing a previously established policy of um, of lifetime suspension of being banned from ReaderCon, decided to give him a two-year suspension for reasons which we're not clear on, um, mm. or at least which those of us who are not on the board are not clear on. Uh, I think, and then there was a huge outrage, as there probably should have been, all over the Twitterverse. Now, I, I've, I've been in touch with uh, Rose Fox, other members of the programming committee, other members of the, um, of, of the, the con committee. And the situation, I think, is going to get resolved in a way which is as satisfactory as it can get at this point. Yeah. Uh, I guess the thing that bothers me about the responses um, and the thing that kept me from actually resigning in an immediate sort of fluff of outrage were two things. One, people are talking about ReaderCon as though everybody at ReaderCon did this. Mm-hmm. Um, ReaderCon is not, uh, it's, it's, it's not the Democratic Party or, or something. It was, it was a decision of a few people that almost none of us on any of the other committees agree with. So for one thing, I hate to see that happen. The other thing, the guests of honor at ReaderCon next year are two of my favorite people. Or Pat McKillop and Maureen McHugh, mm-hmm. and I, I, I want the thing to get fixed before they show up. I would hate to see them, sort of, either have to withdraw or, or waste a guest of honor appearance at a convention which has been sullied in some way. So uh, I think Rose Fox is doing a heroic job to try to make this as workable as it can be made. Well, I, I, I hope she does because ReaderCon's always a convention that I've wanted to go to. There's a couple of things that, that I'd, I'd say in response to that, Gary, and that is, first of all, 
I think every organization, you know, convention or otherwise, has to realize, and probably does, but has to realize that they are a monolith from the outside. I mean, we've talked often about how Locust is seen as being some kind of you know, mon- monolith from the Oakland Hills, oh, yeah. even though it's in fact not. Redicon is too. And you're, I mean, to some degree, yeah, everybody at Redicon did do this. Everybody involved in Redicon did, was part of it because they're part of the organization. And the group who made this decision are the authorized group to make this decision. So they're making it on behalf of everybody. So happily or unhappily, everybody gets to own it. And that means they have to resolve. I'm very heartened to hear that you believe that there are substantial steps being taken to resolve the situation. And I look forward to hearing those come to light publicly. Uh, but you know, th- there's two things here that I think that I, that I, I want to look at just briefly. First is there's the Ridicon thing itself, right? Now mm. it's it, it it is bad on two levels. The act, the actual f- things that occurred at the convention are bad, right? The person and the uh, Rene Walling, the way he behaved was utterly unacceptable, and it shouldn't have been happening. And then the board itself acted in a strange and contradictory manner and came out with what appeared to be a very poor decision and i say appeared because it contradicts their own policies and so you know i mean if if, if what they needed was a more flexible policy they either should have started with a more flexible policy or they should have enforced their policy and then reviewed it later this is that that's how you do these things you don't just make it do something that looks and unfortunately in harassment and all these kind of things appearance is such a critical thing and what it looks like rightly or wrongly is entitled white guy acts contemptibly uh his mates get to decide on his fate and they softball his fate because you know he's their friend and they like him right and unfortunately you just don't get to do that that's really mm-hmm. bad now i do hope they get, and i hope they get to resolve it i mean it's and my heart goes out to anybody who's been on the victim side of this equation uh, less so to the people at, you know, on the ReaderCon board. Uh, I am aware of their significant contrib- volunteer contribution to, to running ReaderCon, and uh, I hope they do find a way to, to move forward positively. I have to say, the other thing is that to me, and this is my own blinkered past, Gary, is it's really only come to my attention, my, I've only become aware over the last three or four years, mm. that this is just as common as hell at these conventions we go to. We go to, the, we go to these conventions and we think that they're fine and we think that we're lovely and we name our favorite conventions in the world and we talk about ICFA and we talk about Ritacon and we talk about World Fantasy. And yet, three years ago at World Fantasy, I'm sitting on a, on, on a bed with somebody as she cries into my shoulder because a prominent member of the, Austra- of the science fiction community, not Australian, pro- prominent member of the science fiction community, has... has harassed her at the convention you know last year we end up frog marching some guy out of a party that i'm helping run at world fantasy that's two of the last three world fantasies this has happened and i'm yeah. not aware of there being a formal world fantasy convention policy about this just because i'm not aware i haven't looked it up but i'm not aware of one we're frog marching some guy because he's acting like a complete dick this stuff has to just stop it's outrageous and appalling and i realize that this is just my blinkered past that i'm not aware it's been happening all the time I, I, oh, I, my I, God. I, yeah, I mean, I have to say I chatted. I didn't chat with Genevieve as much as I'd like to. I've had this experience yeah. that you've had of talking to people who have been harassed at prior conventions and world fantasies and world cons. But usually after the fact, I mean, the yeah. thing that I, I, I feel I, I feel like, OK, I'm, I'm, I'm some clueless guy in the days because I didn't find out about any of this happening until after I got home. Yeah. Um, it's not true. Somebody pointed out to me a creepy guy wearing... Japanese wooden sandals or something. Actually, my friend Stacy pointed it out. 
and I didn't connect that at all with Genevieve at the time. But, yeah. but yeah, I think to some extent, um, I don't know how. One of the things I was thinking about doing, one of the things I actually recommended the ReaderCon do, and other conventions might think about doing this as well. Yeah. First of all, you establish some kind of an emergency number, and then you make it a text number. So if somebody feels like they're being harassed, they can text that number without the person who's harassing them, if they're still in the room, knowing it, yeah. and, and get some kind of immediate response. I mean, it's not that difficult to police these things if committees yeah. take it seriously. I don't think you can keep really creepy people away from conventions. Well, I, th I think the other thing, just to be really clear here as well, and this is something that came up here at home as well, uh, this is not simply the responsibility of the organizing committees or the convention committees. Yes, they have a job to do. Yes, they have a role to play. But, you know, how many of them are there physically? Three, four, six, eight, twelve, if it's work on, four, five hundred? Um, small group of people. Everybody in the community has to own this problem. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody who is around has to adopt their, you know, work out their own position. And, you know, you, you can't, if, if you see it, you have to stop it. If you're... You know, if if you know someone who's doing it, you have to make them aware that you have no tolerance for it. It it, it you know, this is this is a p pollution in our environment. I mean, Dora Goss is posting yesterday that she experienced something similar at ReaderCon last year. So it's not uncommon mm -hmm. at ReaderCon. It's not uncommon I, I, at World I, I, Fantasy. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think that makes ReaderCon a more corrupt. No, 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 no. This is a societal problem. Absolutely. I mean, and, conventions and are just a subset of society, uh, but and, and, it's a pro problem we have to own. Well, I think it's a problem that uh, that you any, anybody, especially anybody who has any uh, connection with the organization of a, con a convention, has to own. Uh, Genevieve was is, is is was very outspoken, was very courageous, and, and and she, I think, as I understand it, made the formal complaint on Sunday. Yeah. Uh, had she made the formal complaint on Friday, presumably at that point somebody should have gotten in touch with this guy and just sent him home right then. Yeah. Uh, and that's fairly easy to do. Uh, I'm not sure that everybody is, um, is like Genevieve in being comfortable to be to, to, to contact somebody like that. Yeah. And especially, and Genevieve is a, a very uh, professional, composed, good writer, among other things. She won the Crawford Award this year. I'll put in parentheses again. What do you do when there's a young fan who has not got any reputation to speak of at all? Who's not a celebrity? Who's not a writer? Who's being harassed by us? And I've seen this happen, and I've seen it, frankly, happen at at, uh, at ICFA, where there's a senior writer in the field uh, or a senior figure in the field um, who commits the harassment, and this young fan or young scholar, in this case, doesn't know what you're supposed to do. But how can I possibly say anything that will gain credibility against one of the sure. legendary writers in the field? Uh, and Empowering, in some in some sense, um, I don't think this should happen to Genevieve. I don't think it should happen to Dora Goss. I think that they are experienced enough that they will handle it well. I'm working somebody at their first con yeah. who is, as several of these people on, on Twitter have said, a nobody who's not a celebrity. What do they do? You know, who do they go to? I'm going to be honest. I don't know the answer to that question. I wish I did. I think maybe it's part of the reason why I feel strongly about the idea that everybody has to own the problem to try and remove this as much as we can from the environment that we value. I mean, uh, we all say, honestly and, and frankly, that we, we, you know, we love going to these conventions. I realize it's not 
uh, endemic at Raidercon or endemic at World Fantasy or at the others event, but they're there. And I think it's a, a part of the solution is getting every single member of our community to, to own the problem so that we start stamping it out. You know, surely, think, yeah. surely, surely our community needs to have its own zero tolerance approach for this sort of stuff. Not just sit there and go, oh, he wouldn't do that. Or he's really a great guy. You know, uh, I mean, I think somebody said sort of the other day sort of about Mr. Walling that, you know, he was really a mention. Yeah, no, he's not. No, he's not. He may be somebody. I mean, he may be a great guy. I don't want to, you know, I don't know. I guess what I'd say is he didn't behave like a mensch at that convention, you know, frankly. That's all you have to go on. I mean, Farah Mendelssohn, who's a good friend of, of ours, put on her live journal today that she yeah. considers him a friend, and she's never seen behavior like this. But that's not but, – but, you know, friendship doesn't trump uh, the situation at hand, which seems to be, you know, unarguable. He, he, he did not behave like a mensch. He behaved in a, in a threatening way, in an intimidating way, and uh, – you know, you can't forgive that no matter who it is. Uh, well, so. I mean, let, let, let's turn the light back on ourselves here, Gary, because it's always probably easier and, and well, no, it's, it's more reasonable. Well, well let, us, let us look back at some of our own friends. Charles Brown had a tendency to leer at women. Yes, he did. In a, and, and yes, he tried to sort of hide it under, I'm just a ha-ha, dirty old man, but sometimes it was really painful. And he didn't really get called on it much. No, he didn't. And I don't have to throw you, go back too far to some of the more infamous major serious significant guests of honor at ICFA, Gary, harassing certain younger women at, at ICFA, do I, Gary? You don't. As a matter of fact, one of those women was my wife when she was alive. Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think, I mean, I would, I would on this podcast, I would, I would own up and say, look, I, I have not done enough. And would want to do more uh, in, in you, know, the, you know about what's happening in my presence and what you have to stop and what you have to tell your male friends is just frankly unacceptable, and I think that's something that we need to push as a point of view at the at conventions we attend because it cannot be solely left to the victims to fight this fight. Either we're going to say tacitly that, hey, you know what, this this is actually okay in our our, our uh, events and in our community, or we're going to fight it and try and get rid of it or minimize it as much as we possibly can. Well, you don't, you know, the problem is um, with that, that the, you, you can't leave it up to the victims, but sometimes the victims are the only ones who know they're being victims at the moment. Sure, of course. And, 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 and one of the things that, I mean... I wonder if there should be should be some kind of a signal. There was a a secret gesture years ago when I was cornered by somebody who was really really boring and was known to be boring at a convention, and I was talking to Neil Gaiman about it after he he, he told me about this secret gesture that pros use toward yeah, each other yeah. to get, which means rescue me from this situation. I mean maybe there would be something like that. I mean uh, I, I the, what what bothers me about this uh, is having been at this ReaderCon. And having seen Genevieve a few times, not a lot, uh, I could have been standing in a room at some point when one of these things was going on, and I just didn't see it or didn't notice it yeah. or wasn't paying yeah, attention. I... And how do we get some kind of uh, signaling mechanism so that anybody in the room? You're absolutely right. It's not after the fact. It comes down to the board, uh, to, to, to the to the board of the convention or to the uh, committee of the convention. But it shouldn't get to the point of after the fact. There should be something that happens the first moment this happens, where somebody feels like they've got allies, they've got friends, they've got people. Yeah. 
and they don't have to, uh, you know, lodge a formal complaint later. Uh, I wonder. I, I don't know anything about this guy. I don't. No, know no, I don't know him either. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but the fact is, you you wonder if somebody besides Genevieve had approached him earlier if, if, and, and said she's serious about this, and you're going to be in serious trouble. If no, 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 no. No, stop there. Mm-hmm. No, no. He should have just fucking stopped. She told him to stop. He, he should have. He doesn't have to get told. Oh gosh, it was serious. No, she's really serious. It's not fun. No, he should have bloody well stopped, Gary, and you know it. Um, of course. But and, uh, and well, honestly, the only secret signal should be fuck. You're harassing me. Piss off. Um, you're expecting ah! people to act like mature adults. I'm, uh, if, if at that point he wasn't backing off, she might have needed. She might. She might have been able to use some support at that point. Let, let's start with it. All the conventions should have a clear, simple, consistent policy. It should be pu- it should be published publicly, uh, in, in in what they do. Everyone should be aware of it, so that potential harassers cannot pretend that they have not been told, and so that people who are potential victims do have a confidential p- path that they can go. You know, yes, that's follow, what I'm looking all that for. All kind of stuff. Uh, if, I, if some uh, if some young person and 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 I I. I don't even want to characterize harassers. I don't want to start stereotyping harassers. But if oh. if somebody feels harassed, there should be something. The first time that happens, there should be some action yeah. that would result in it not happening again. And it, at that sure. point, after that first incident, it should no longer be between the harasser and the harassee. Yeah. It, it should go beyond that. There should be some con involvement at that very first instance. Yes. I mean, I will say I don't want to keep this to, about Rene Walling, who may have made one unfortunate set of mistakes – or about Ritacon, which is a widely loved event, but is obviously going through a uh, something of a crisis at the moment. This mm-hmm. is about, as I've said before, this is about our community and every time it comes together and making sure that people are... I mean, I think that the idea of a safe, safe space when it comes to conventions is a, is a myth, really. Uh, there are oh, too yeah. many people and there's too much of diversity and such thing. And it, so it, it, at best, it can only be as safe as the best example of, of the society at large, which means that it is going to be mixed. However, that doesn't mitigate against against the, against the need to to be as diligent, as intolerant of this behaviour as we can be, so that we can push forward, so that we can do something uh, and achieve something that will will stop it, so that all the members of our community can come together and be accepted and feel reasonably safe and know that they won't be, you know, that the victims won't be victimized and know that, I mean, in fairness as well, and know that people who are, who are accused of being, you know, um, Mm. harassers will be treated fairly because I don't think anyone would argue that someone who is accused of something should be treated fairly. There should be a, a mechanism for that. And I'll say as well, one of the problems with the Ritacon thing is, Retrospectively, they made themselves unfair, didn't they? They did. Yeah, person X, who was the first person who was banned for life, mm-hmm. that person's banned for life, this guy's banned for two years. Now, admittedly, all they've got to do is give up a convention, even if it's a nice one. It's not a huge thing. Yeah. But still, here's, here's, ah. I was going to say, this is, this is an almost unrelated issue, but it's one that, that it may have been in the minds of the board. I don't know. But I, I, I sometimes think conventions take themselves far too seriously as, as life events because the board had an opportunity to tell this guy he would never be at a convention, never be at a reader con again, as though that were a death sentence. Well, you know what? Um, 
it's not a death sentence. It's it's, it's not saying you're going it's a to end. Readercon is not that big a deal. No. And, and to tell you that you can't come back to a convention for the rest of your life shouldn't be that big a deal in your life. If it is, you need a new life. Well, uh, well, also, and I'm quite serious about this part as well. If it's that big a deal, you really need to think about how you're behaving up front. Oh, yes. if, if, if you love it that much, if you care about, that, about it that much, then take it seriously and act like a grown-up. But I think you're right about one other point. The ReaderCon is very rightly getting um, examined very closely as a result of this event. But I can't think of a convention I go to regularly, including Wiscon, that has been free of these events. No, no. Which, which is the tragedy of it, which is the true tragedy. And which right. hopefully – look, if anything comes out of the ReaderCon thing it, you know, that could be good – it would be that Ritacon resolve the situation in an honorable way, that, that it sends a clear message to other convention organizing groups that they need to have addressed this issue substantial, substantially and substantively, and that it continues to send a message to all the members of our community that if you are in the position of the victim, we will care for you. If you are in the position of the harasser, you will not be tolerated because you cannot be, you know. No, I, I, I agree, and I think that that, that I, th I think you're generally true that this is a problem with the culture, and I don't know, and I, I really doubt that it's worse in the science fiction and fantasy world than it is anywhere else. Because I've been to conventions, I've been to educational conventions. God knows, I went to a convention of hotel accountants once. Yeah. And my my sense is that our world is better than the business world when this when it comes to things like this. But it's not where it should be. No, it's, it's not, not where it should be. be. No, you know, if 20-year-old girls or 50-year-old women are being harassed, then it's appalling. If anybody is being made to feel uncomfortable or unwelcome, you know. And, and somebody who we may have on the podcast in the future, I don't know, uh, Nick Mamatis has been writing very intelligently, I think, and perceptively mm. about geek culture and there's a whole thing that's come up lately about geek culture that john scalzi was talking about this last week or so you may be aware of it uh about you know who gets to be a geek and all sort of thing yeah it all ties into that i mean they're, they're, i think the the issue that right ra that raised it was someone saying that the attractive young women are coming along to cosplay weren't really geeks and really shouldn't be part of it all and that kind of flows into the whole problem um Ah, anyway, I, anyway, Gary, I think we're we're running over time, and this is oh, we're running over time, but this is this is uh, this is oh, I know. It's not going to get oh. resolved in this podcast, and you know, we, unfortunately, no. Realistically, not unfortunately, that's the wrong word. Realistically, you and I, right, are part of the demographic that are the problem. Yes, we are absolutely. And I think what we have to take away from this is that, on top of hopefully, our colleagues at the Redacon Committee resolving this issue honorably that we have to and our friends have to move into uh, uh, you know through the community making it clear that this is something that we wouldn't tolerate you know yeah you know, what, what what do you do if it turns out that your good friend is the person who is the harasser in this instance that's the one of the challenging things because you know with all the rest of the stuff, it's all theoretical, whatever else. But what do you do when it's someone you know and you have to smack him in the head with a shovel and go, you can't do that crap? I actually have had that exact experience yeah. with a very, very famous English science fiction writer. 
and with the person we both know, and I can yeah, tell you about yeah, after that. Yeah, yeah, under, under the and, and, yeah, basically, basically, what you have to do is be honest, and you and, and there's always a problem in a field like ours where there are people mm. like us, uh, people who are with the band, as you once put it, yeah. and there are famous writers. And there's a point at which you have to say, okay, I will risk. Uh, I don't think it will be a real risk if there. No, 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 no. Let's not, not be silly. No, yeah, n- n- you know, if we turned around and, 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 okay, first of all, this is a hypothetical example and the person does not do this. But if someone as famous as Stephen King was the problem, you would still have to say you're being a dick. No, he's not, but you know what I mean. Uh, but there's no, no real fallout for us other than souring a relationship with someone who was a friend. Well, that's what I mean. You have to be willing to say, okay, I, I, I'm proud as a fan, as a reader, as a yeah. adjunct, as a critic, to be friends with this famous writer and... You have to be willing to say the friendship isn't worth tolerating that kind of behavior. No, I agree completely. You know, I, I and, and also I think there there is one th- there are, there are a few things that in a relationship you owe somebody else, and in a friendship there is an element of, and I'm cautious about this, but there's an element of honesty as well. And it's that part that says you are acting badly, and as your friend I have to tell you that, and you have to really really address it. And if you can't, then you're not the person I thought you were, and maybe we can't be friends. Exactly, and that's one of the points at which you say that okay, uh, that you may be you may be a world-renowned writer, but uh, I'm going to tell you this, and if if my telling you this bothers you and you don't want to be friends anymore, that's too bad. But and, and then you yeah. then you write it off. Okay. Um, <sighs> well, hopefully we'll find out by the time we podcast again, Gary. Hopefully this will have this particular case will be resolved, and we okay, can report I, I a happier yeah, thing. I, I can't say everything no, now. I know. No, I know. I know, but the, I know. The, the, no. Hopefully, within 24 hours of this podcast being heard, there will be a uh, some kind of resolution, which I think is as good as can be expected at this point um, okay. on the web. Okay. Well, on that note, Gary, it's good to be back okay. talking to you. It's good that we're in a great science fiction year. It's sad we've got lousy news stories to report on and yeah. lousy things happening at conventions we love. And I hope fervently that we will have the World Fantasy Ballot next week. And that we'll have something fun to talk about. And we can talk about fun things like that. And we're back on schedule now for <clears throat> for all the people who have been pining for us. All the <laughs> who have just not for... known what to do. <laughs> you mean for all of the no emails we've received, yes? <laughs> for all, yeah, all, all the, email, yeah, the emails we received saying, where are you? Which constituted zero, as far as I can recall. <laughs> yeah, we were missed, man. Uh, <laughs> <sighs> okay. Well, on that cheery, right. cheery note... And with a brief point out that I, that I did appear on The Writer and the Critic last week, and so if you want to go and hear me talk there, I'm over at what, their website. You'd have to search okay. on it. I might link to it. I don't know. Uh, I will talk to you next week, my friend. I will talk to you, my friend. Okay. Same. Take care. Bye. Good. Bye.